HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with, like, paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, my name is Eli Sussman, host of The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm the chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant in Brooklyn. I started this podcast because I wanted to get better at my job. To become a stronger leader and a better business owner, you have to look to what others have done in their careers to get to where they are today. This podcast is about unpacking my guests' path to help find meaning and context about all the stops they made along the way. How do your old coworkers and bosses' culinary and leadership styles influence you? What do you take with you to the next stop and what do you leave behind? What does each job provide for you in terms of creative and analytical growth? My guest today is Jay Woolman, the executive chef of La Lue in Prospect Heights, a recently opened wine bar from the team behind Fausto. Jay has come up through some of the most important kitchens in New York, and I'm looking forward to him sharing his experiences working extensively in the Tarlow family of restaurants, as well as working at Hearts in Brooklyn and King in Manhattan. In his food, he draws inspiration from French, English, and Italian cuisine and works heavily with produce he buys right down the road at the green market. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, man. I'm excited that you're here because this is a cool evolution for this podcast because I've interviewed a lot of people that you've worked for and alongside of, and now you're here, the executive chef of a restaurant, talking about your own food. I've had Andrew Tarlow on, Katie Jackson from Heart, Claire and Jess from King, Christina, who was the chef at Renard's when you worked there, which is an Andrew Tarlow restaurant. So now we can just spend like 45 minutes. You can give all the juicy details and all the backstory on, on all these places. I can just you know, cross-reference what I learned from them. Um, we're going to go through a lot of the spots you worked at and talk about um, maybe each one and, and what they mean to you. But um, before we get to the the last 10 or so years that you've spent yeah. cooking in New York, let's jump all the way back to South Florida, where you grew yeah. up. Uh, 
Florida is uh, a, a unique place. You're from right outside of Miami, the Miami area. Yeah, I, I spent the like teenage years of my life in Fort Lauderdale, uh, which is just a little north of Miami. Um, my parents actually owned a nightclub in Miami, which is what brought us down there. Um, so I had a pretty unconventional childhood of spending weekends like alone and hanging out at home while my parents were out partying. And that's sort of, that's Miami and it's experience for me. Did you grow Skateboarding up? Did you and like getting arrested come and, up in the nightclub? Like, were I you... mean, I was certainly like there when my parents were like counting money that night. I was in the office, like waiting for them to get off and then go and spend the day together on the beach. Um, and occasionally, yeah, like skateboarding in Miami, getting arrested and having to call them for trespassing and all that sort of stuff was, was, uh, was club culture something that was appealing to you or was it the type of club that like when you were a teenager and a young adult, you didn't want to have anything to do with it? I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I think the only part of it that was really like present in the house was, was music um, I actually thought that was sort of the trajectory of what I was going to be doing, but we just always had music on in the house. But the actual culture of like partying and all that was so removed from what I am as a person and what I was as a teenager. How did they get into the club world and the club scene? Yeah. You said that originally you were born in Houston. Yeah. So, so are they from Texas? No, my parents are initially from South Africa um, and they moved to the States Um my father was in hospitality. His family comes from hospitality in South Africa, and they had started to look at uh, opportunities here. Um, and at the time, he was actually in the car industry. He, he, he had a few different jobs throughout his, his time. But um, yeah, they, they were in hospitality, and I think they always had a sort of draw towards entertainment. Um, and I think they saw an opportunity in Miami as like a place to, you know, it's like it's a nightlife world. So is it still around? Does it's the not club still exist? around now. Did it have a long life think, in terms think, of clubs? I think it did. I think they were in it for about 10 years and then shady business partners and whatever pushed them out. Sure. <laughs> I think they were a little tired. So, I mean, a club in Miami doesn't sound like it. You know, you probably rub shoulders with some characters yeah. that are I think there's just a lot of like liabilities and, and it was fun while it lasted for them. Did you, you talked about music a little bit and, you know, obviously there's a, there's hospitality involved in a nightclub, but did that extend into the home Were your parents entertainers or were they kind of like at the, did they keep that thing separate? Like their work was that. And then at home it was sort of more, maybe more quiet. And yeah. I mean, it was funny cause there was always like house music or something playing because my dad was always sort of interviewing and, and meeting with DJs and listening to remixes and all this sort of stuff. So there was always like loud electronic house music, but it sort of ended there. there the entertainment was more just like friends over for dinner. And and did I, did I get this information correct? Your parents were not super adventurous eaters. No, right? they're still not. They're like actually horrible picky eaters um, with no sort of love for, for fine dining or for 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 going out really they like 
They like what they like. So they want like a plain chicken breast and yes. their son is a chef yes. and has My, my dad is the pickiest eater experience. I've ever met with, uh, it's either like a, a well done burnt leather steak or a plain chicken breast skinless <laughs> grilled with a baked potato with no, nothing on it. Uh, and I, 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 to be completely honest, I've never seen him eat anything outside of those two things in my 30 years of life. That's crazy because... Yeah. You know, Miami, I don't I don't honestly know what it was like, you know, 15, 20 years ago when you were a young kid, but it is a vibrant uh, food scene now. Yeah, totally. Um, I know that uh, I imagine that it had, you know, some cool spots back in the day that um, that maybe your family didn't frequent. But do you have any like any childhood experiences or teenage experiences of like getting a Cubano somewhere or, you know, whatever you may have engaged in uh, as, uh, skating around Miami? I, I mean, it was like a lot of, for me, it was, it was some of those like fast, cheap bites, like jerk chicken on the side of the road or a Cubano or, or just like sort of the casual street food that we would find in downtown. But as a family, no, we would never sort of venture into any of that sort of cuisine unless my father was out of town. That was when we would make little like, let's go get Thai food together with my mom and my brother or something that we just could never eat at home. We would often look forward to that because uh, it allowed us to, to eat things that we weren't regularly having. So I imagine because your parents were often out late that that's the reason that you had you had a live-in nanny for a while, right? You had Violet, this woman yeah. that, that uh, took care of you, and uh, she was from the Caribbean? Yeah, she was from um, Turks and Caicos, and... She just like was my second mom for for a lot of my childhood and used to cook amazing food. And it, it definitely like to this day, I still think about some of those dishes she was making. And it's pretty uh, does that influential. Yeah. For sure. does, does that give you that must have given you a unique perspective because you're in Miami, which is a culturally diverse city. And then you have a woman raising you who is from the Caribbean and. Uh, introducing you to probably stories and flavors that are not of your family. Yeah. And uh, and so was there any inkling in your early years of what you might, you, you mentioned music, but like did did something creative seem like what you were going to pursue? Was there like a, a college path yeah. or were you just like getting arrested and no. fucking I mean it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that bad. Um it's just like the the trespassing in Miami when you're like a teenager trying to skateboard on a on a university property at, at twelve at night. Right. It never goes well. But um I always was sort of uh inclined to more creative work. I, I wasn't a great student in school, um, but I was certainly tactile and involved in the arts programs and involved in music production programs. And I thought that that was really where it was heading. Um, and I went to college for a little bit and it just wasn't for me. Um, you know, that sort of show up on time and, and study things that weren't of interest to me just didn't really make sense. And I couldn't justify the price that my parents were paying for me to go to school when I had zero sort of interest in really pursuing any of those things, um, which then sort of brought me to New York. And so 
you decide that college isn't for you and you come to New York, you're thinking of maybe work that can be done that's with your hands. And did you end up at Cheeky Sandwiches right away or did you pursue other jobs first? So I, uh, I moved here when I was 21 and I was working for Apple selling computers and I was just like, like in the store, you in mean? the store. Okay. Yeah. Like working in the middle of Soho, dealing with crazy foreigners, honestly hating it. Um, but they had good benefits and I could pay my rent on time. And that was enough for me at that point in time. But I really wanted to start doing other work. So I went to Cheeky's um, and I fell in love with this place. I don't know what it was that drew me in so much, but it felt like you weren't in New York and it felt like so sincere and the owner was there and he was so sort of involved in the experience and I was just drawn to it and I wanted to be a part of that place. Um, and I had very little culinary experience. Um, but he was like, I like your energy. Why don't you come hang out here? So I started working there part time, like making biscuits, frying sandwiches, Po' boys, you know, like fried chicken and learning, even though it was very small, like learning how to make beignets and learning how to work with whatever was in house. And then I quit Apple to go do that full time. Which, you know, you were young and you could take a risk, yeah. but to leave a solid job to go work at, you know, it was a, a, a sandwich shop. Yeah. yeah. Um, did people say, like, that's a crazy decision? Did your parents feel worried about you at that point? Did you feel a little lost, or did you think that this was a great path to go on? I thought, for myself, I thought that this was a good decision. I've, I never sort of, I think, growing up with my parents doing what they were doing and sort of their, their teachings of do work that makes you happy, um, I felt like it was the right decision. I think that they thought that it was just a hobby that I was interested in and would probably switch switch again. I didn't think they thought I was going to really take it seriously. And I think all my friends at Apple and everyone that I knew here was a little like, what the hell are you doing? But it sort of triggered some new inspiration in me. And What exactly do you think it was about that place that for people that have never been there, what was it about the kind of the DNA of the actual like physical location and the owner Uh that, that grabbed you because of, of any place that you would have encountered in, in New York, I'm just wondering what makes someone quit one job in one field to just completely jump into another field. I think it was a, a, a culmination of working for some place that was very corporate that was, um, you know, I love Apple. I, I have an iPhone. I have an Apple computer. They're great products. But those businesses are so large that you sort of feel like a tiny ant in something. Um, and then I came into this place that was so small and sort of, he didn't really give a shit about the, the decor. And he, all he all Din cared about was like, were people coming in there and leaving happy? And was it a place that felt sort of like safe where you could be yourself and you could like hang out for as long as you wanted and no one was worried about like turning a table or 
what how loud or how explicit the music was like that to me was so rare at this moment and it felt refreshing i also love sandwiches as an entry point into food especially sandwiches that take a lot of care in crafting them because everyone eats sandwiches and they are an equalizer to a Uh certain point it's like the hamburger you can have a one dollar hamburger and a 70 dollar hamburger and there's you can bake the biscuit and you can do all the fillings and make all the sauces or you can just you know call cisco and have everything delivered right there's there's so many levels to it um and it's interesting you said like you you were making biscuits which is actually yeah. a, a pretty difficult yeah it's, task. Not, it's actually not that easy and they're right. very inconsistent right so. and and so you you while some might say like oh you got a job at a sandwich shop you're actually launching head first into real cooking which totally. is which is not just not to, to denigrate like an entry level line position, but you might just be like assembling product that someone has prepped for you earlier on in the day, yeah. right? You come to your station and like, there's definitely cooking and work that gets done, but you were actually, you were baking, you were yeah, learning the, the, technique. The, 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 that little restaurant is so small that it required you to sort of be the salesman, the cook, the dishwasher, the prep cook the guy that counts the money at the end of the night. Like you were sort of forced to do it all, which when you think about like somebody who has no experience, who wants to jump into it, it's kind of an amazing opportunity to have your hand in a, you you have your hand in all the pots. Yeah. You get to see what immediately, what things you don't like about being in a restaurant. You say, wow, I hate dealing with customers. Yes. (laughs) If only I could just be behind, just behind the, behind the scenes, (laughs) behind a wall where no one can see me. Totally. Uh, Who's Chris Fisher and Uh, what type of role did he play? So to, to backtrack a little bit, um, while I was still at Apple, I met this I met this dude selling him a computer. His name was Luke. Um, I had already sort of started voicing interest in cooking. I don't know what was the turn, but I had the interest. Um, and I met this guy while I was selling him a computer, and he threw a great sort of conversation about how filthy his sheepdog was. Um, I was like, "Where are you from? And why is your what's up with your dog?" Um, he told me that he was from Martha's Vineyard and he spends half, half his time here and half his time on the island. And I think we just sort of had a a connection. Um, and he was like, you should reach out to my friend, Chris, who's doing some really cool stuff on the island. Um, so I emailed Chris, um, he was a chef and a farmer on the vineyard. Um, and I just went out to visit him with a couple of friends of mine. And it was like, it was truly the sort of that was the turn for, for my career. I, I met him and I was immediately influenced by what he was doing. He was cooking on his family's property. He was, you know, harvesting and raising all his own livestock and growing all his own food and then having these amazing greenhouse dinners on the property for for people that lived on the island or were visiting or celebrities or even just for like fishmongers um, in trading like we'll give you fish in order and we'll cook you dinner in return. Did you end up working for him? I did. Yeah, I spent some time with him um sort of seasonally uh which was really just, you know, an idyllic place to learn how to cook. And all these, you know, little moments that we can pull out over, you know, the course of your life and and your career, but you connected with Andrew Tarlow there, right? Yeah. So, so he shows up and he, what happens? So essentially what happened was Chris was like, 
in, in no disrespect to Cheekies, if you really want to be a cook, if you really want to like do this for real, you got to get out of the sandwich shop and you got to go to a real restaurant. And I was scared of doing that because I had no culinary, you know, college experience. I was sort of unsure about knife skills and what it was going to look like entering a, a busy restaurant, especially at that time when you think about like Marlowe and Diner in the early 2000s were like all the rage. Um, and why would they want to hire me when everybody wants to work there? But fortunately, Chris and Andrew had a pretty good relationship and he introduced me. Um, and he was like, this, this is the only place in New York City that cooks the way that you're thinking about food and the way that we cook, you know, similarly on the island and using the best sourced ingredients that you can find. Um, and, and through that connection, I, I trailed and I got the job. What was that first day week like when you come into a very hot restaurant yeah. where people are coming from literally all over the United States to go work there because it has the it has the aesthetic and the ethos that people were they're still looking for that but at that time people were saying where do I go to break down a whole animal and exactly. then use all those parts and everything on the menu all, and oh we do all our own baking here <laughs> like it has all those pieces that people were excited yeah. about it feels intimidating, right? Oh, totally felt what, intimidating. What are those first days and weeks like? Um, you know, I started off as an oyster shucker, and that was like, that was it. Um, and that alone for me was enough. I was just so excited to be involved um, and to be around people that wanted to be there. Um, I, you know, slowly started learning how to make basic things, Spanish tortillas and having my hand in any Garmanger prep and, and just volunteering myself to all of the cooks, the chefs, the sous chefs, like kind of being a pest. Um, and I think at first they were probably all like, who the hell is this kid? Uh, but then it, it sort of, you know, I think that the, a lot of the people there had, had come up in a similar path. So I think they saw themselves in me um, and they were willing to sort of give me the chance to to grow and to learn there. So it was it was it wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. There's something to be said about that point, which is, you know, you were you were at this spot where you were doing everything and learning a lot. But to go to a place where there's a lot of cooks around and people that are interested in bringing their own ideas, even if you were just shucking oysters, just by osmosis, like hearing what's going on in the kitchen and learning about spacing and timing yeah, and all those I mean, it things. Was, it was it, fantastic. It was like the most that you could ask for as a, as a very green cook, like sitting in on a menu meeting every single day, even though you weren't contributing to it yet, to be able to sort of hear how my sous chefs would, would think about food and how Ken, who was a chef at the time, would think about what we have in the walk-in and what we can make do with it. And that... You know, it starts it starts lighting off ideas in in your little brain of like, oh wow, this is how these guys do it, and I can't wait till I'm at that point where I can do that. I want you to think back now to the, that first six months again, and I want you to think about actually like non kitchen and non food related things that you may have learned then that you didn't realize until maybe even now that you're in charge of a kitchen. Uh -huh. um, are there things that that feel like 
leadership oriented or organizational that maybe you didn't realize at that time that now you look back on and think like, wow, this was even a non culinary education as well in those first couple months? I, I, I definitely do. I think it was, it, it goes back to that sort of topic of, of inclusion. Um, and that those kitchens were quite egoless. Um, and I think in so many professions, not just kitchens, but taking your ego out of it and, and looking at your team as a whole and trying to include everyone is really informative and, um, something that I'll carry with me for however many things come ahead. Like leading a team is about you're only as good as them and, and everyone has an idea and an opinion and should be heard. Um, and I think that at Andrew's restaurants really preach that and sort of everywhere I've tried to go from that point until now, I feel like has a similar ethos. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about you working around uh, Brooklyn, jumping over to Manhattan, and of course, uh, your new role as executive chef. Stick with us. We'll be right back here on the line with more. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep-deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome back to the line. My guest today is Jay Woolman. Before the break, we were talking about him leaving a uh, sort of a normal job and going to work at a sandwich shop and then jumping into real professional cooking by joining up with the folks over at an Andrew Tarlow restaurant and really digging in. And so you continue with the Tarlow group and you've worked um, at a bunch of places, but yeah. you worked at Renard and Christina Lucky was the chef there when you were there. That place, although a Tarlow restaurant, it was it's in a hotel. It's now swapped to some somewhere some other restaurant group, but um, in the Wythe Hotel, sort of a sprawling F and B operation, right? Much different than a diner where yeah, it's a tight team. Completely opposite. And so, what was that like working within? the Tarlow family, but working at a hotel restaurant, which has a different set of needs and responsibilities attached to it. I mean, it was a different beast altogether. Um, but I felt like I sort of having worked at Marlowe and Diner for so long and then having spent some time at Romans with Frank, um, I needed to see it. And 
I needed to see what it was like to be in a much bigger place. I had never experienced that. Um, and I and I adore Christina, and I thought she was so talented as a chef, and I loved what she was doing, and I, and I, I had been friends with her with, with her time at um, under April, so I was quite familiar with, with who she was, um, and I thought that the pairing of Andrew's um, sort of restaurant mentality with Christina's talent was something that I, I needed to, to be involved in. Um, but to be honest, like that scale of a project is not for me. Um, you know, it's just that the space is massive and the room service and just all of the demands of, of a property of that scale is, I prefer smaller. Do you think that something gets lost even in a group that has so much control over quality and sourcing and they're very vertically integrated, right? Of and, and so it is just extremely difficult to satisfy all those demands and make a profit and uh -huh. retain staff. So like, were there things that you saw there that, um, that you maybe thought like, well, if the Tarlow group can't do it, like, nope, nobody can? Or do you think it's it was, like, a unique, there were unique issues to the hotel? What do you think? Uh, I mean, I think that there was, there was issues just with, with, with agreeing on, like, what, what you believe in versus what the property demands of you, mm -hmm. um, to be, transparent I was there t sort of towards the end of that relationship um, and I sort of helped them as they were transitioning over to new ownership which was also very interesting and informative to, to sort of go from knowing a style of management for so long to being in a, in a holding period to then being introduced to the new chefs that were coming in who were also friends of mine but had a very different sort of mentality of how they were going to run this business um, and, and sort of having such a loyalty to Andrew for so long and hearing other people saying, well, we don't want to do it like this anymore and we don't agree with it. It's sort of, well, I'm here right now. What side am I on? Um, so it was, it was interesting. You have spent time, um, obviously, in the restaurants that we've talked about where the the Tarlow kind of aesthetic led by the chefs that he hires is like a, a kind of unfussy plating, very ingredient-focused. Yeah. Hearts, uh, Servos, The Fly, a lot of those people worked for Tarlow. There's, you can draw yeah. clear distinctions. You can see and, um, That they are of the same school of thought. And then also at King, where um, in more maybe a, a slightly more elevated dining experience, Manhattan, so uh -huh. a white tablecloth, a yep. little bit fancier, but still like really ingredient focused, not overly plated and fussy. It seems like you are over time really narrowing in on what the style of cuisine that you like. Yeah. And I think that was that was sort of obvious from the get go. Like I knew what I wasn't and I knew what I liked. Um, so I, I went to Hearts with Nick, who was one of my sous chefs and sort of acting as a CDC when I started at, um, at Marlowe and Diner. And I, and I related so much to his food um, and particularly like his, his direction of, of Mediterranean driven food um, that when, when the opportunity for Hearts came up, I, I jumped to it. Um, and then unfortunately 
some personal issues came up and I had to step away. Um, but then I ate at King when they recently opened. Uh, and I, I, you know, I had heard about them and I was fond of the River Cafe and I spent some time in London. So I was familiar with these restaurants and I ate there and I was just so impressed by how audaciously simple it was. And I, and I begged them for a job. I was like, I have to be a part of this. And I actually like harassed Claire and Jess. I think they were like, what is your deal? Um, but then they were in a pinch and they called me and I was honored to be like involved in that project. It felt like so similar and so familiar from what I was already used to, but also quite different and a very different group and, and a young entrepreneur sort of mind frame and working with all females. And it was a, it was a really awesome opportunity that I, that I look back on and I'm still like very grateful for having been a part of that place for while I was there. Does King, does anything about King feel risky to you? Like the fact that it wasn't overly plated and that there aren't 40 components uh, on your plate? You I know? think, I think that the, the thing about a place like King is you either get it or you don't. And I think a lot of people that I've sent over there have been like, ah, you know, I don't know about it. But I think if you get it, you understand, wow, they like really know how to cook beans or this quail is perfectly grilled and it just has one thing on it, but it's sort of only about the quail. Um, and if you're looking for more, if you're looking for like crazy bursts of flavors, then that might not be the spot for you. But I think that they take risks for sure. And they sort of pay homage to what they know and where they came from. And that's very special to me. A lot of the places that you've worked, it seems like they've, they've either intentionally or unintentionally like followed that I want to be a neighborhood restaurant path. A lot of them have been elevated far beyond a neighborhood restaurant. I mean, diner is one of the most important restaurants yeah. in, in America, right? Yeah. But it is in fact a neighborhood restaurant that people that live close by treat as such and go there several days a week. Uh, same thing for King, even though it's at a higher price point, right? Yeah. I'm sure that you, you saw regulars, regulars that yeah. are there a couple days a week. Totally. And, and, um, and and hearts as well, which is actually near where, where I live, like Bedsty Crown Heights area. Like that's a neighborhood vibe place, even though it was on you know the Bon App hot list and yeah. and received a lot of accolades. Um, do you think that um, are we having like a resurgence of the neighborhood restaurant vibe now, or or has it always been apparent? Uh, I think that it's. It's always been apparent, but I think that it's changed. I think that it's like, it's no longer the little mom and pop place. It's, it's now like the, the talented new generation of chefs that, that want to have something that feels honest and sincere and isn't on a grand scale. Um, you know, I don't think Andrew ever anticipated Diner becoming what it was. I think he just wanted to create a place that was for him and his friends and for the people on the block. Um, and I think that sort of sets the pace of, of what, what a neighborhood restaurant now looks like. Um, and I think Nick with hearts, I know from, from our discussions, that was always his intention was it has to be for the neighborhood and we have to provide something that people around here want to come and eat at. And I think King in a strange way, it's the same thing. And it's certainly with Lalu now, you know, I think 
that's part of the the plan, and I think that's part of how, when you open a restaurant these days, you should be thinking about that. At at every place you've worked, it seems like you've made uh, not not super aggressive, fast, like incremental changes to the way that you work. Like it seems like you're a guy that like bides his time and, and learns a lot and soaks up a lot. Um, but you have been like gradually promoted every sort yeah. of time and every place that you've moved for someone who's listening to the show, who maybe is like a line cook now or a sous chef. And they're thinking about like, how do I make it to the next step? Like what's, what are the moves that I can make? And they're maybe thinking about staying or leaving. How, what determinations factored into your, uh, reaching for that next level and either staying or leaving? I think it's, it's a matter of believing in yourself and sort of looking at what you're doing versus what the people around you are doing and saying, honestly, like, am I ready? And, and if I'm not ready, what's, gonna, what's it going to take for me to be ready for this next move? And is this place, have I, have I met, have I reached the ceiling here? Do I need to see some new perspective? Do I need to like, give it more time? Do I need to be more patient? Do I need to be more aggressive? Um, you know, I think that's sort of part of working in small restaurants is, is understanding that there's only so much. And sometimes you have to branch out a little bit if you want to get to that next step. And the timing might not work out that the opportunity is there for you. So I think for me, it was always like, staying at a place and, and seeing it through and learning the most I can from that place in that particular moment. And then when I felt uh, like I was ready for more, then it was time to explore some options. So what specifically drew you to your, your current restaurant? What about the a- anything, the, the location, the style, the ownership, the, the focus on wine? Like talk about any elements that made you feel okay i'm ready this yeah. is this is the next step that i'm going to take totally um you know it, and it was my first executive chef role so i was certainly like eager to find a place that made sense um i think the first automatic thing was the scale of of the of the property um you know it felt doable it felt familiar for me 50 60 seat restaurants are sort of my sweet spot so I felt like, oh, I, I know what I'm doing here. I can, I can jump into this, and it's not going to be so much of an obstacle for me. It's not like a Reynard where there's so many moving parts. It was just sort of like, let's, let's get in here. Let's figure it out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of natural wine. I feel like everybody in Brooklyn is right now and sort of happening everywhere. But um, the, the sort of combination of the food I like to cook with a focus on natural wine made a lot of sense to me. And I was really um, interested in the, in the project and, and having met with Joe and Alyssa and Dave and sort of getting to know them as people and, and understanding where they were drawing inspirations and how they wanted their businesses run. And I felt uh, a connection with them and felt like this could be a good relationship happening here. And um, yeah, it was just a really awesome opportunity at a great time that I wasn't super scared about. I was like, I, I feel like this is time for me and I'm ready and I can take this place to the level that it needs to go. 
I want to talk about the menu and some of even maybe the additional challenges that you faced because just menu creation for any restaurant, there's so much that goes into it. It's not just what will people buy? What do I want to cook? What tastes good? What can I craft so that my food costs are right? But you have, in my opinion, an additional layer, which is you have to have a menu that people can both order one or two things as a snack, but also be able to create a meal out of uh, if they want or, you know, with some direction from from yeah. the service staff. So how did you conceptualize your menu of being able to blend all those elements? Um, was that challenging for you? Honestly, it wasn't. Uh, I, I think about like how I like to eat and I think about the early days of Marlowe sort of being a, in a strange way, like kind of a a wine bar. Like we used to all serve smaller dishes and then you'd go over to diner for a bigger meal. Um, so I thought about that. And then I thought about Estella and I thought about restaurants in London that I really like, like Rochelle Canteen that serves sort of smallers and, and their menus sort of transcend into, into larger plates if you want to go that route. Um, and I just sort of looked at some books and, and, figured out like, you know what, my food that I want to create is for sharing. And it's not necessarily like large gluttonous food. It's like certainly demands some bread and, and there's a lot of oil and there's a lot of, um, it just sort of get your hands in it, but you want to do it with, with a group of people, um, which I think made sense with the space and, going with a wine and pairing things with wine along the way. And it was actually probably the easiest part for me. What's one dish that you have on right now that you're really excited about? Can you describe it and sort of take us through some of the components of it? Sure. Um, we have, I, I love seafood. So I think these funky wines that we're serving goes really well with, with seafood right now. So we have some head on prawns. We're getting these beautiful um, Carolina prawns from through Greenpoint Fish, who I've worked with exclusively for a long time. Um, we just marinate the shrimp in paprika and garlic and bay leaves um, and a little controne pepper. And we broil them until they're nice and charred, and serve them with some wild mountain oregano and lemon wedge and a little aioli. And it's just oily and like your hands are in it and it's it's so delicious. It's so simple, but something about it, like what more do you need? There's, uh, there's an element of being the executive chef that it's, you're at the top. It's a little lonely. You're kind of the last line of defense. Of course you can go to the owners with, with questions and concerns, but who do you, now that you've got the leadership position, who do you reach out to, um, peers from your, or, you know, folks from your past where you've got, uh, questions and issues that you want to bounce them things off of them? Who are those folks that you go to? I mean, it's all the people we talked about. Yes. I, I believe in like, no matter what happens, like never burn your bridges and, all of the relationships that I've formed over these past 10 years in the in these kitchens, I still consider all of those people my dear friends and mentors. And, uh, you know, I, I remember when I got this job, I went out with Nick Perkins immediately for a drink and I picked his brain as best as I can. And he was so 
open to just talking about it all with me and being like, just do it, you know? What are you afraid of? And understand this and, and remember like what we did here. And I've reached out to, to plenty of people just, hey, like how do we do payroll like this? And just asking for honest advice. And, and no one has come back and been like, you don't know that by now? Um, so yeah, just like friends. It is always, you know, there is that moment when you've got the keys to the car and you think to yourself, all right, well, I've got to, I've got to go forward. Um, what, you know, it feels like there's a vast, it can, you can go in any direction and you have to kind of focus and center yourself, um, on that first day when you had the ability to kind of just go forth, did you have a plan? Like, did you think to yourself, oh, wow, I've been building to this moment and like, I'm super ready. Or did you almost have to press pause and just regather yourself and, and figure out how you were going to move forward? Uh, it was a bit of both. You know, I was like headstrong and eager about getting in there and, and putting on a full new menu. That was, that was all me. Um, but there was also the reality that, uh, there was an existing team in place um, and there was an existing menu and those things don't happen overnight. Uh, so as, as ready as I felt, there was sort of a slap of reality of like, oh, there's some other fixing you have to do first um, and, and getting acquainted with the space and getting acquainted with the, the setting up new purveyors and, and all that work. It takes the romance out of it a little bit. It's like it's not all just about putting on a new menu and cooking your food like there's so much other stuff that comes first um in in having a successful restaurant and you know i think that was sort of a a, a moment of like oh shit i'm the boss but there's a lot of other stuff to this now i think that's super important for people to hear that that may think to themselves like they're maybe a sous chef and they're like, I just can't wait till I have the ability to put on my menu. But there's so many other elements uh, yeah, to yeah, the I job. Mean, it's, 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 you know, making the dishes and then executing them and teaching the staff how to cook those dishes is honestly quite a small part of the job. Yeah. Uh, there's so many other pieces to cover. So on that, I wonder uh, what is sort of, a normal schedule for you like, and, and also if you can be thinking about in the back of your mind, um, what was it like to come into a place that had an existing team? There was yeah. front of house and back of house that existed there. The yeah. restaurant had been open before you came in as executive chef. So, um, what was it like to work with folks that already had an idea of how things worked? And then what is a normal day or week like for you sort of? Um, in terms of coming in there, like uh, the previous chef, I, I applaud for having gotten the place up and running and, and getting people in there, and they had quite good success already. Um, so I'm thankful for that. And the team that was in place, you know, I, I'm particular about who I work with. Like, there's no secret there. Um, so it was challenging for me. I was working with cooks. I had no clue, like, where they'd come from. And... They didn't know about me and our styles were quite different. Um, but as these things go, like changes are made and things phase in and out and started bringing on people of my own, of, of friends of mine who I'd worked with and immediately started to sort of see a, a shift in, 
in in the food and sort of in the culture and my style of management and I think that the team that was already in place there from the front of house they're all still there and they're all pretty amazing people and the management was amazing and Dave's there and you know really supportive from from Joe and Alyssa and Dave as a whole to sort of get it to the restaurant that I needed it to be from my side of things so that was you know it 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 happened a lot faster than I thought it would um in terms of of like my day to day you know I'm getting there pretty early like and spending the whole day there and it requires doing invoices and it requires looking at um emails and all the things that I don't really like doing but the reality is is like it's on me to do them uh you know I like since my apple days I hate computers um but I, I and I didn't know like how to make a spreadsheet um so learning all of that stuff now I know how to do it uh and the food we just sort of I I go in the walk in and I look around and what we have is what we have and some nights we're running duck breast and some nights we're running duck legs like why order more if you have stuff in there to sell and that's the way I learned how to cook is like make every cent on what you have before you order more and sometimes like you might run out of things but that's sort of the only way my brain thinks about food these days and about writing menus is like what's at the market what's in the walk-in what makes sense right now and what can we do with it that's exciting and that people are going to be like excited about what's the most satisfying part of the job for you we just talked about some of the parts that are rough and that you don't like what to you is the most uh what in, in, inspires the most happiness in in the job for you i think it's 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 a little bit of the validation that comes with it uh it feels good i have people now that like want to work there i have you know people that i've worked with in the past or friends that have heard about it or whatever it is that are like i want to be a part of this and that makes me feel like when i was going to diner saying like i want to be a part of this because of what what you guys are doing and how you cook and i feel like now i'm in that i'm in that place where i've created that environment and that culture and are cooking that style of food and that feels really good and it sort of pays homage to how i learned um and then just seeing being in like a open kitchen and getting to see how people are reacting to the food it feels pretty awesome like seeing clean plates every night i think so much of of working in kitchens like we 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 feel like we're unsung heroes so often cuz we don't get to feel that other side of the experience and we're just working 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 and we don't see like how people are reacting to our work um so being able to see it 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 makes it all worth it you know it's like sure my days long and i'm my back sore but people are loving the work that we do day in and day out and i'm working with people that are talented and want to be here and have ideas and can contribute and and it's just like it's awesome couldn't ask for more right now in terms of sort of initial victories you know it's like having people come being satisfied having the right staff, you know, creating a culture that's positive. Like these are all amazing steps in, uh, in your 
first role and in your first year. And I know that you just said that you are satisfied, but I wonder what, what might be like a tangible goal that, that you are, have set or that you are thinking about setting for maybe year two. Um, and as you go forward and continue to refine operations and the food, like where do you think it could go for you and for the restaurant? And, and is there something tangible that you're looking towards? Um, yeah, I, I, that's kind of a tough one. I, I feel like I just want to have, obviously I want the business to be profitable. I think that's first and foremost, um, you know, so we can all continue to do it. Um, but I think I'd like it to be a place that is, it's a neighborhood restaurant, but it's also a place people are talking about and coming from out of town and visiting. And, and that's sort of my goal of, of creating a place that people want to, they know about and they, they have to check it out. Um, and I think from, from our side of things, like I would love to do whole animals. Like we've started experiencing what it looks like to get in whole goats and maybe we can branch off and do whole pigs. Cause I'm super into that sort of that ethos of using the whole animal and, it's a really, it's a small restaurant. Like, let's be real, the walk-in's tiny, but figuring out a way to push it as we grow um, and sort of push the envelope of what we can do on this small scale, but still not let that restrain us too much, I think is, is sort of my next big picture goals with Lalo. Let everyone know where they can find the restaurant. What's the address? Uh, if there's a website, where can they go to, uh, to check you out? Uh, the address, it's in Prospect Heights. It's 581 Vanderbilt. And the website, I believe, is lalubrooklyn.com. Cool. Jay, thanks so much for being here and sharing Thank you your so story. much, man. Really was, appreciate it, was, it. Yeah, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Um, everyone go check out the restaurant. Open seven days a week. Seven days, and we're open for brunch, too. Uh, I would say it's not like your typical brunch. It's more of like a European lunch, which uh, I hate brunch. So for me, European lunch makes a lot more sense. And we're, we're doing some pretty fun, tasty food over there. So everyone go check them out. Uh, and you can find this and all the episodes of The Line on Heritage Radio Network or wherever you find your podcasts. We're going to be off next week, but come back and find us in two weeks, Tuesdays, 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.